Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. I've had people over the years that have done some really kind things for me, whether it be a gift or an encouraging word or some type of act of service, but probably one of the most encouraging things that anybody has ever done for me has been to pray for me. Over the years, the different churches that we've been at, there have been people who have told me, you're on my daily prayer list. I remember one elderly lady had a prayer list that sat right by her little chair that she sat in. And it was so encouraging to me for her to say, your name is on that list of people that I pray for every day. I mean, is there anything kinder that someone can do for you other than to pray for you? I I don't think so. In fact, every one of us in this room has somebody in our life that prays for us. It might be a parent or a grandparent who prays for you on a regular basis. It might be the Parents of the person that, Lord willing, you may marry one day, and whether you realize it or not, they're praying for you at this very moment. If nothing else, I want you to know that our elders and staff here pray for you on a regular basis. There is somebody in your life who is praying for you. But this morning, I want to share a thought with you that, as I considered it, I'll just be honest with you, it floored me, and it still floors me. It it's a, it's a thought that should drive us deeper into worship. We just sang that song, How Great Thou Art. And if there is something great about God, it's this idea. It's that Jesus prayed for you. I don't know if you know that, but Jesus prayed for you while he was here on this earth. And I don't know that there is any person who could pray for you that would be better than Jesus praying for you. And for me, that's just such an encouraging thought. It just makes me want to hit my knees and give God thanks and just pour out my heart in worship for the simple fact that Jesus prayed for me and he prayed for you. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 17, and it's a little bit longer text today, but I want us to read it. It's too many slides for us to put up, so we're going to go old school, physical copy of the Bible, or if you have it on your device. In John chapter 17, it records for us the prayer of Jesus, and I love what Gary Burge wrote about John 17. He said, John 17 gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus unlike any other chapter in all the Gospels, and I firmly agree with that because when you read the prayer of Jesus, and I call this the Lord's Prayer. I know the Lord's Prayer is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's also the Lord's Prayer, but this is a recorded prayer of Jesus left for us so that we could get a glimpse into his heart and into what he prayed about for you and I. So I want us to read this together, but I also want to invite you to stand because I think there's something special about standing when we read God's word. It's a very biblical thing. I'm going to invite you to stand. If you're not able to, I understand, but I want to invite you to stand as we read John 17 together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine is yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you in these things that I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, not because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I don't ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Please be seated. So there are three things that Jesus prayed about, or three things that we have to point out. We could spend weeks on this text because it's so packed, but three things that I want us to look at this morning that Jesus prayed about. The first one that he prayed for us is that we would experience this close, intimate relationship with the Father and with the Son. And what Jesus says in verse 3 of John 17 is he says, this is eternal life. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of eternal life. Some of the things that I think about are heaven. I think about those streets of gold that you read about in Revelation. I think about the city, the garden, all these different images that we have. And uh, think about the river that runs through it and the tree of life that's there in the garden. Think about God being the light. And, and to be honest with you, when I think of eternal life, oftentimes what I am guilty of is thinking of something that's in the future, of this future event and reality that we will one day experience. But that's not all that Jesus said. Jesus said, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? It's living in close, intimate relationship with the Father and Son. That's a loaded statement because what that means is that we can experience eternal life, at least in some capacity, in this life. It's not just a future hope, but it's a present reality. It's this 
alternate dimension that we find ourselves living in where God's realm and our realm begin to intersect and we start to get little windows and little tastes of what eternal life is going to be like. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 in our auditorium class, we've been slowly making our way through Genesis chapter 2 and I promise at some point we'll get to 3, just be patient, there's so much there. But what we've seen is we've seen this garden that God planted in Eden and there he dwelled with his creation and in that garden was the tree of life and they had the opportunity to live eternally with God in his presence and that is eternal life it's not just about heaven and the streets of gold and whatever all that's going to look like eternal life is living in close relationship with God because that's what God desired originally in the first opening pages of Genesis. That's what we look forward to in Revelation 21 and 22, where the Bible closes with this idea of us being with God. And Jesus prays that we would experience eternal life today and now in this world in our dimension. And so what we see is we see these little pockets or little windows or little experiences where God's realm and our realm intersect and overlap. It's what some authors would say is we're living in the now, but not yet, where the kingdom of God has broken into the world in some capacity, but not in its fullest capacity because God's reign and rule and God's will is not being done all over the earth as he desires it to be done on earth as it is in heaven because there are still places in this world that are not submitting to the rule and reign of God. But yet we get little windows into that. In fact, this is a window. When we gather together in worship and when we bring our hearts and our voices and our lives together, and we praise God, one of the things that we are experiencing amongst the encouragement, amongst the opportunity to praise God, is we're getting just a little bit of taste of what it looks like when heaven and earth come together, when our realm and God's realm intersect. And it's a window into eternity of what it looks like to live in close relationship with God. When you gather around a table of fellow brothers and sisters, fellow believers, And you share in that meal. And you're not just having the superficial talk over who won the ball game or what's going on at work or what's going on in the news. But when you engage in deeper conversation and you actually begin to share experiences that are going on in your life and you open up your heart a little bit and allow other people in to see the burdens that you face and the struggles and the anxieties and the cares that you have in your life and you begin to lay some of those burdens onto one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a window, that is a pocket where heaven and earth are intersecting because in that moment, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's just a little bit of taste of what eternity is like. You are experiencing close, intimate relationship with the Father and with the Son as you're experiencing it with one another when you go out into the community. And as Hunter talked about when he was talking about the offering, and you live with margin in your finances so that you can bless as God places opportunities right in front of you to help somebody out, a human being that's in need, and and you give to them, you offer to them a meal, you give to them some money, you do some type of act of kindness for them in the name of Jesus. One of the things that you're experiencing is what Jesus prayed for because you're living in close, intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. You're allowing that relationship to impact not only your life, but your wallet, your bank account. And one of the things that Jesus talked about is this close connection between our heart and our bank account. 
because they're closely tied. Jesus says where your treasure is, there's where your heart can be found as well. And one of the things that you're doing by giving acts of kindness and benevolence is that you are showing that person what it looks like to live in the presence of God in close, intimate relationships. This is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that we would experience this close relationship, not just privately, not just in your one-on-one devotional time, but communally, together as a group. We experience eternal life now, today, as we live closely with Jesus. That's one of the things he prayed for. Another thing that he prayed for is that his disciples would live in the world, but not of the world. It's kind of a weird phrasing, especially if you're newer to church. What in the world does that mean? How can I not live in the world? I'm on this planet. It's blue. It's massive. There's some green. I've seen pictures from it in space. I know that that's where I'm at. It's rotating on an axis. It's spinning around the sun. It takes 365 days to do that. How can I live in the world, but not of the world? When Jesus uses this word world, what he's talking about is he's talking about a group of people or really a direction of living of people who, are, who have turned their back on God and are living in an opposite direction. He's talking about here a clash of values. He has people in mind, but he also has cultures and systems of government and ways of living that are opposite to the direction that God is moving. So if you were to leave out of here and you were to hop on Highway 59 and you were to either head north or south, what you'll notice is that there's opposing directions of traffic, right? One direction's headed south, the other direction is headed north. You get a little bit north of here, the speed limit picks up to 55 miles an hour, and the only thing that separates you from the opposite traffic is that little yellow line. And there are some times where I wish there was a little bit more to separate us from somebody that's coming along at at least 55 miles an hour. And maybe just we could have like a wall or something, I don't know, that's just not much to separate us than some little painted yellow line. But what you'll notice is that if you were to be driving north, you couldn't also be driving south. Or maybe you're driving north, but you're halfway over into the opposite direction. That's not a good idea, is it? I don't encourage you to try that, okay? That will result in something catastrophic. When Jesus says that his disciples, when he prays for us to live in the world, but not of the world, what he's trying to get us to understand is that there are two ways of living here. There's the way of living that that is being led by the Holy Spirit that he's been talking about in John chapters 14 through 16. And the way of living that is led by the Holy Spirit is headed one direction. And then you have the kingdom of this world. You have the world that Jesus is talking about, and that value system is headed in opposite direction. And what you'll find is you can't live in, in both directions. You can't live headed in the direction of the kingdom of God and also live headed in the direction of the kingdom of this world. You can't do it, but we try, don't we? We try. We try sometimes whether or not we're realizing it. What prompted Paul to write in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. That word conformed means pressured. It's like if you had a can of Play-Doh, who doesn't love playing with Play-Doh? I don't care how old you are. It's always enjoyable. And you get that Play-Doh out and you shape and you mold it into whatever shape you want it to be. When you're shaping and molding that Play-Doh, you're doing exactly what Paul says not to allow the world to do to you. Don't allow the world. He's not talking about the giant blue ball floating in space. He's talking about a way of living. He's talking about a direction of living that is headed in the opposite direction of where 
God is headed. He's saying, don't allow that culture, that value system to shape you into the image that the world is trying to mold you into being. What you need to understand is you are being discipled, period. You are being discipled. You're being discipled by someone or something. You're either being discipled by God and his people, or you're being discipled by the world and the culture in which you live because you're being shaped into someone. And your life is being encouraged to head in a direction. And you ever feel that pressure, that tension that Paul talks about? Don't be conformed. Don't be pressured into the pattern or direction of this world. You ever feel that pressure to watch what everybody else at work or at school is watching? Listen to the music that everybody's talking about, that they're listening to. Talk in ways that the people that you work with or go to school with are talking Try to get a laugh at some of the same kinds of jokes that other people are telling. Buying some of the same things that other people are buying. We live in America, right? We were all brought up on the American dream, were we not? Now, we can do one of two things. We can lie and act like, no, that's not us. Or we can admit it and allow God to root that out of our heart. But you can't grow over something you're not willing to confess. And I stand before you as a person who grew up in the United States of America and Western civilization that is encouraged to pursue the American dream. And if I could stand up here and tell you that's never affected my heart, I'd be a liar. I'm going to guess in some way there are pressures from this world that you feel creeping into your life. Where you know the way that God is calling you to live. But yet there's this other way of living that you've also grown up in. And you feel this tension, this pressure of moving back and forth. And what you need to understand is that it's, one, it's impossible, and two, it could potentially be catastrophic to your faith to try to, try to straddle both ways of living because they're headed in opposite directions. What Jesus prayed for is that his followers would live in this world in and among the value system that this world has, but not live and share the same value system that this world has. And in fact, you can see it in some of the very next verses that he shares around verse 16, 17, and 18, where Jesus in his prayer says, Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of this world. I'm praying that you sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. What does that mean? That means set them apart. It means pull them farther and farther away from the value systems of this world and set them apart as distinct and different so that the way that my people are living is so radically different that everyone can see that your value system of where your life is headed is radically different from those that you work with or that you live near or that you go to school with that are not following after Jesus. And it's even so radically different from those that you even live with and sometimes worship with who are trying to straddle the line and live in both both uh, directions, which is impossible. What Jesus is praying is that we would be set apart and sanctified by the truth of God. It means that we would dive into scripture and into our relationship with him so that he disciples our viewpoints, the way that we see this world. He gives us the values that we need to have so that when we look at this world, we, go, we can see it as clear as black and white to say, this is where God's kingdom is, is headed. And this is where the kingdom of this world is headed. And I want to head in the direction of God's kingdom. I want to be guided by his spirit, living in community with his people, headed toward him in close, intimate relationship. He's praying for us to be sanctified, set apart from this world while we're living in this world. 
And then he also talks about in that same prayer, in that same text, after being sanctified, that he reminds us we're being sent back into the world. I love going to Gulf Coast Bible Camp. It's one of my passions. It's one of my favorite places on earth. I like to affectionately describe it as the armpit of the South because it's like the hottest place on the planet. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful place, don't get me wrong, but during June and July, it just gets really, really hot and muggy, much like armpit. And so I love being at Gulf Coast Bible Camp. And I've heard so many people say, and I've even said it myself, man, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just like load up and live on this giant compound at like a Bible camp or somewhere like that, because then we could just live in community and everything would be okay. We wouldn't be tempted anymore, which is not true because wherever God's people are, guess who's also going to be there to tempt them? Satan. He shows up at church. Show up at Bible camp. He'll go anywhere you're going. And wouldn't it just be so much better Regardless, that's not what Jesus prayed for. Jesus did not pray for his followers to live in this little holy huddle. He didn't pray that we would come to church and just live at the church and just stay here. He prayed that we would be sanctified from the world, set apart by his word, and then sent back into the world. I love what David Mathis said. He wrote, Jesus' true followers have not only been crucified to the world, but they've also been raised to new life. And I love this and sent back in to free others. We've been rescued from the darkness and given the light, not merely to flee the darkness, but to guide our steps as we go back in to rescue others. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. And what it means to be an ambassador is to be a representative of the royalty or of the governing force in which you're being sent by. Who is our royalty? Who is our king? That's God. That's God on high. And he is sending us back into the world as his ambassadors, with a proclamation, with a message of reconciliation. You can be made right with God. You can experience the light. You can come out of the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, and you can be brought into the kingdom of light. But listen to me, folks. That will not happen as long as we're trying to live both directions. What Jesus prayed for is for his followers to be in this world, but not of this world, so holy and set apart, not holy in that we're too good, but that we're a part of this world, but yet our value system is so different, but it's different in a way that prompts questions and opportunities to share the goodness of God and to share the light. The third thing Jesus prayed for is that we would be one. I read this story about a church back in the 1800s, the Dewberry Baptist Church in Gainesville, Georgia. And they had a church split back in the 1800s over a chicken leg. And I know that sounds silly, but there's a part of me that's a little bit, anx- that's a little bit anxious telling you this story, given the fact that many of us are about to walk into the fellowship hall and have a fellowship meal with, can you guess, fried chicken, okay? Let me tell you what happened, at least what I understand what happened at Dewberry Baptist Church back in the 1800s. There were two brothers in Christ in this church that were doing what Christians, what religious folks do best. They were arguing over doctrines. And they were arguing over the doctrine during a fellowship in which one of the brothers held up a piece of fried chicken on his fork, and he said something that made the other brother mad, and so he chunked a biscuit at the other brother. It knocked a piece of chicken off the fork onto the ground. A dog came, because, you know, back in then, you brought the dogs to church too, came and ate the chicken, made him mad. So what'd they do? They split the church. And what formed from that was Dewberry Baptist Church number one and Dewberry Baptist Church number two. I'm not kidding. Those were their actual names. And they were separated by three miles. 
But yet their division was so much further than any distance. And I wish I could stand up here and be like, yep, that was the only church that ever split. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you that in our fellowship in Churches of Christ, we've never dealt with any splits. But that wouldn't be true. Many, some of you in this room have even experienced that firsthand in some capacities. Why does that happen? Because we're, living, we're not living out what Jesus prayed for. Jesus prayed that we would be one. What you need to understand is a couple of things about unity. Number one, unity does not equal uniformity. We will not be one when we all think exactly the same thing. Because let me go ahead and tell you, folks, we are not all going to think exactly the same way. If for nothing else, then each of us is at a different part in our walk with Jesus. The place that I am at in my walk with Jesus is very different from what my walk with Jesus looked like 10 years ago. And I'm going to guess in some capacity that in 10 years from now, my walk with Jesus, my understanding, my knowledge of his word, my experience in the spirit and with his people is going to shape and mold me slightly different. I have no idea what it will look like, but I'm going to guess and pray and hope that what I understand in 10 years is not the same thing that I understand today because I want to grow in my understanding. And so because of that, I might think a little bit differently than I do now and understand a little bit differently. And guess what? You are in exactly the same boat. Where you are is probably at a different place than I am or the person sitting in front of you or behind you is in their walk with Jesus. And so because of that, our unity does not mean our uniformity. It does not mean we all look and think exactly the same way because it's the spirit of Christ that brings us together. What will give us unity is exactly what Jesus had spent talking about the three chapters before John 17. What will bring us unity is his spirit. The spirit will unite us together as one. But you also need to understand that unity requires work. We don't just show up and instantly be unified. There are so many things that are out to attack our unity. One, we have an enemy of our unity. He talked about the enemy just a few verses before when he prayed, keep them from the evil one. Satan himself, the accuser, the deceiver, guess what he loves to do? He loves to sow division. He loves to come in when nobody realizes it and sow seeds of division amongst God's people. And the more tightly knit a family of God is, the harder Satan will work to divide that body of believers. And let me, let me just stand up here and be honest with you this morning. He is working. He is trying to sow seeds of division amongst our body of believers. He will go after every one of us to try to sow some type of division because the greatest way to destroy a body of believers is from within through division. To get you upset at somebody or hurt by somebody or some type of disagreement over a theological teaching or doctrine or verse of scripture to where you can't fellowship with one another, to where you break apart and divide your resources and divide your your opportunities and your work together, Satan will attack that. Satan will go after our leadership and try to divide our leadership as hard as he possibly can. The tighter we are together, the more we're walking as one body of believers, the more Satan is going to attack us. It's why Jesus prayed for our unity, and it's why every one of us, every one of us must work diligently to keep the unity in the spirit of Christ through the bond of peace. There's a couple things that will destroy unity. Pride, making everything all about you will destroy unity. Gossip will destroy unity. Refusing to forgive will destroy unity. 
Us as a church not spending enough time in prayer will destroy unity. Jesus prayed for our unity. And what I want you to remember this morning is that unity starts with you. I know that's cheesy. I know. You're like, goodness, Eric, that's unity starts with you. <laughs> well, it does. And it's cheesy, and hopefully you'll remember it. It starts with you. It starts, starts with me. It starts with how I treat the unity that Jesus prayed for. None of us is greater than the church. What Jesus prayed for is to experience a supernatural unity that's a witness to the world. There's a lot of different thoughts in Christianity and Christian culture about how to grow a church. You can have some amazing ministries and programs. You can have the most engaging and heartfelt worship. You can have the most dynamic preacher and communicator you could ever imagine. You can have the best kids events, youth events, all this stuff. You can have singles ministry, divorce care, addiction ministry, and all those are well and good. And listen to me, folks. I desire for us to have the best that we possibly can. But that's not what Jesus said would grow a church. What Jesus says witnesses to the world is supernatural love and unity that is found in the Holy Spirit, in and only in the Holy Spirit. That's what will grow a church. And we can think that having the most amazing ministries and all that will just bring people in. But what will truly change someone's life is exactly what changed their lives back in the first century that we read about in Acts chapter 2. It's what's changed people's lives ever since then, and it's what will change everybody's life from now till the time Jesus returns. It's not going to be what the church does for them. It's going to be how we love and treat one another and how we stand for and with one another and refuse to allow Satan himself to divide us. And we walk and live together in supernatural love and unity founded and guided by the Spirit of Jesus. And as someone is exposed to that, and they're received and welcomed and loved for who they are in a way that they never have been before, that's what grows a body of believers. That's what brings someone to Jesus. It always has been and always will be about relationships. Doesn't mean that we should just be like, okay, let's just be as mediocre as possible and all the other stuff we do, let's just make sure we love. No, let's be as effective as we possibly can. Let's exceed for excellence as much as we can, but let's not put the cart before the horse and think that that's what will change the world. What will change the world? What will change our community and will change our church is the supernatural love and unity that Jesus prayed for, that he taught about, that he modeled gave his life for. I just want to remind you as we leave, Jesus prayed for us. Prayed for us. And I'm so thankful. Prayed for us to experience a close, intimate relationship with him. He prayed for us to live in this world, but not of this world. To be sanctified and sent. He prayed for us to be one as he and the Father are one. My prayer is that we answer his prayer. My prayer is that we live out his will for us and in turn be an answer to the very thing that Jesus prayed for. This morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you've never given your life to Jesus in baptism, he's inviting you in to experience eternal life in a close, intimate relationship with him. This morning, if your heart's drifted from him, and you've wandered, but you, you want to come back home, you want to rededicate your life and get your life back in the direction that you know God is calling you to live, 
And we want to encourage you to repent and respond in whatever way that God is calling you to do. Whether you want to respond publicly for prayer or you want to meet with somebody afterward or you need to have a moment right there, I'd encourage you, just whatever you do, don't do it alone. Find someone to share your life with and to pray with you in some capacity before you leave today. If we can encourage you in any way, let us know as we stand and sing.